every time we experience disorder, the disorder that feels beyond our control, it does push us into the problem of evil because it's in that state where we go, this is a disorder that's beyond my control. There has to be some sort of agents beyond me. Thanks for listening to Deep Talks. I'm your host, Paul Anleitner. In today's episode, I sit down with a couple of Gen Z YouTubers who read my book, Disordered, A Christian Journey Through the Problem of Evil and Suffering. They reached out to me because they wanted to discuss aspects of the problem of evil and suffering that felt relevant to their generation. It was a fascinating opportunity to talk about the shape of faith and the meaning crisis for Gen Z, a generation by their own admission that's surrounded with material abundance and yet feels a deep sense of existential dread and nihilism. I'm approaching five years of hosting this podcast, and we just hit 500,000 listens across all platforms. But in order to keep doing this podcast without ads, I need just 200 of the thousands of listeners to become a supporter of my work on Patreon. By supporting on Patreon, you're not only ensuring that I can keep this podcast going, but you're keeping my Substack page where I publish essays and articles I've written free of charge. Not only that, but this year I'm transforming my YouTube channel to specifically focus on applying so many of the things we're learning on this podcast to the search for deep theological and philosophical meaning embedded in popular movies and television. Now, there are rewards for different tiers of support, like live discussions with me and fellow patrons on Zoom. There's bonus Q&A episodes and so much more. And new to 2023, I will be releasing the videos of my interview episodes exclusively to patrons at the $7 a month support level or higher. So while the audio podcast will be available to all, only patrons are going to get access to the full video episodes. As of the release of this episode, we've got 90 patrons, so click on the link in the description to help me reach 200 patrons so I can keep doing what I do in 2023. Special thanks to my YouTube hosts in today's episode, Jake Marlowe, who lives here in the U.S., and Theocracy over in Ireland for bringing me on to their wonderful channels and facilitating this interview. This is part one. Part two should be out in the next week or so. I really like both of these young men. I appreciate what they're trying to do on their YouTube channel. So if you felt like following them or subscribing to their channels, I'm leaving links in the description as well where you can check out again Jake Marlowe's channel and Theocracy's channel. Thank you again, gentlemen, for having me on. And without further ado, I hope you find today's conversation meaningful and I hope it assists you on your journey with God. Why is the problem of evil and suffering, a problem. And in fact, what, first of all, what is the problem of evil and suffering and why is it a problem? Yeah, well, when we talk about the problem of evil, we need to differentiate between maybe two common categories. The first one is you have the philosophical problem of evil. So that's the one maybe most people are familiar with when they're studying this in theology or philosophy. They're they're referring to the philosophical problem that evil and like unjust suffering present 
to the notions of a God that's both all good and all powerful. And so one of the best known presentations of that is the, the challenge from the Greek philosopher Epicurus, who lived about 300 years before Christ. Okay. So that's the philosophical problem, but there's also another problem. There's the emotional problem of evil. And that one is maybe less, um, less familiar to those that enjoy, you know, listening to theology podcasts or, uh, you know, philosophy podcasts, watching channels like yours on YouTube, but the emotional problem of evil in some sense is, is much older than the philosophical problem because the emotional problem of evil gets to any sort of human experience that we have of, of suffering. And it hits us on an individual level, a personal level, the emotional and existential problem of evil have to do with how suffering and what we might categorize as evil uh, affects like our entire navigational system of life. So when we encounter an instance of inexplicable suffering or evil, it disorients us. Um, we are fundamentally pattern seekers as a human species, um, and that does us a lot of good, right? So when we see something crawling in the uh, in the grass. Uh, if we don't detect that it's a snake fast enough, we will die. So being a pattern hunter is really, really advantageous to us. The the thing about this is that when we try to discern patterns in the world, let's take like, you know, an ancient, you know, ancient agrarian people who are trying to figure out, all right, I've, I've figured out by studying these patterns that if I plant these seeds in the ground and I water them or we get enough rain, it's going to produce it's going to produce a harvest. What happens though, when I don't get enough rain or a, a flood comes and it washes it all away, or we get drought, those things seem to be outside of my control. And so when that sort of stuff happens, there's certainly the question of like, well, yes, if God is all good and all powerful, then why does any of this bad stuff happen? But there's also the deep sense of like the emotional side, the, the weight of grief when something outside of our control happens and we go looking for like causal agents beyond our control. So that emotional existential problem, you know, that's dealing with grief. What does lament look like? Um, how do I respond to suffering? You know, what I try to do in my book uh, is to start with the personal and the emotional, the existential, to start with maybe some of how my own experiences of suffering disoriented the guiding stories and the theology I inhabited. And then from there to try to connect it to how the philosophical problem of evil, when we wrestle with that, it's really important because it becomes the interpretive framework for how we then process our emotional and existential problem of evil. So we can think of like the philosophical problem as like the guiding story, like the narrative structure. So what you learned as a kid about, well, why do bad things happen to good people? And then when we brush up against bad things happening to good people, we get hit with all sorts of stuff like grief, lament, cognitive dissonance. But a lot of that, we are filtering through the story that we learned about evil and suffering. So that's kind of like the two levels in which the problem of evil affect us. Okay, so the problem of evil is a philosophical and emotional problem. Um, why is it the case that we consider evil and suffering a problem to begin with? Um, if it is the case that we're all just uh, creatures whirling around in uh, this uh, indifferent universe um, that cares not, sees not, feels not, uh, unless you look into the stars and see a goat, um, that perhaps it shouldn't necessarily be the case that the problem with evil should be a problem at all. And right. so 
I wonder why is this a problem? Okay. So when we talk about that, let's start with maybe like the emotional existential level on that. Uh, fundamentally, like as a, as a species, um, as is the case for probably all species, one of our number one objectives is staying alive. Like we like to keep living. Right. And so one of the primary things like our pattern hunting brains are trying to decipher is to figure out what sorts of things are going to keep me alive. And so it's very, very simple for us. Even if we live, let's say, you know, you've described like maybe a framework, a narrative framework someone's living in that might be like reductive materialism, which seems to inevitably lead to some sense of nihilism that there's the universe is random, chaotic. There is no, um, there's no agentic will to the universe, even though like people talk about the universe as if it's a God in that sort of sense, but there's no agentic will. All of this is random. It's chaos. And so in that sense, like the narrative frame you're living in, you might go, well, I shouldn't have a problem with evil and suffering. I, But then you have to deal with, well, so what? Like you live in this world and fundamentally you have these instincts that are like, I'm trying to stay alive. So part of figuring out the problem of evil in that sense is trying to figure out the patterns that lead to suffering and the patterns that keep us away from suffering. Because in a fundamental sense, we don't like to suffer. Suffering is a signal to us like something is going wrong. And so we have to find like a different pattern that works. Now, where this connects to like questions about God whether we're in like a modern context or whether we're in some sort of like, again, ancient agrarian society, there are all sorts of things that we start to figure out are like outside of our causal control, right? So I can't control the weather. Now, when I'm trying to figure out, like if I'm an ancient agrarian person, for example, and my life seems to be deeply connected to the weather in ways that uh, modern people can't fully appreciate, when that sort of stuff happens, I am looking for maybe I see myself as an agent in the world that can act a particular way and produce particular outcomes. But if I don't see like my ability to control these outcomes, I might start to think about, well, are there agencies beyond me? Right. And we see this in all sorts of cultures, um, all sorts of cultures that have what we might call like a meta divine realm, a realm of agents, spiritual agents that transcend human moral agency. So then we start thinking about, well, how does the events of the world connect to potential powers that are beyond me? And honestly, like Hunter, you see this sort of stuff, even when people that are reductive, they commit themselves to sort of like a reductive physicalism. They'll, they'll, they'll use phrases like, well, the universe smiled on me today. And you're like, well, you're, at, you're speaking about the universe in a way that makes it an intelligent agent. Or they might say, man, the universe just, it, the universe wasn't kind to me. I don't, I don't know if people actually say that or not, but um, something along those lines. And what they're looking for is like an agency beyond them. And they go, all right, well, if I'm trying to figure out what leads to less suffering because I want to stay alive, then I need to figure out what sorts of patterns might be predictable enough to keep me away from that suffering. So I think on that level, it's it's an unavoidable question. Fair enough. Um, what is an unavoidable question? The unavoidable, unavoidable question about, all right, um, I experience suffering. How do I stay away from the sorts of suffering that is going to lead to my harm or the harm of others that I love? 
And then we start looking for causal agents behind those patterns of suffering. So for example, like in, in my book, I talk about three categories of suffering. So we have suffering in the, and I'm, I'm saying this from the Christian perspective, that we have suffering that is rightly ordered. So for example, just part of the way God ordered creation, there is a sense in which um, suffering, there's a cruciform nature to some forms of suffering that are like, this is actually discomfort, but it's discomfort for my good. So when I got up in this morning and, and, and I exercised, I felt discomfort. I felt a sense of suffering, but I knew that suffering was actually not, and this is the two other categories, non-ordered or disordered suffering. This was actually rightly ordered suffering that was producing growth. So I don't stay away from it, right? Like I actually kind of like lean into it and go, some of this is for, for our good. Every time I eat something, right? Whether you're a vegetarian or whether you're fine eating animals, like I'm fine eating animals, you are participating in in some sense of the the suffering of something else in creation. So we have questions about, well, is that rightly ordered? Is it disordered? And so then there's good debates about that sort of stuff. The two other categories I mentioned were non-ordered suffering, right? So there's a sense in which like the biblical narrative, let's take even in the, the story of Job, the story of Job, right? Like Job encounters, Job's like a thought experiment. What's the worst possible scenario you can ha- imagine happening to the most righteous person you can imagine? And that's really the best way to think about it. It's an ancient inspired thought experiment. And so all of Job's friends come after Job's experience, like the most ridiculous amount of suffering you can imagine. They all come with their explanations and their explanations are about, well, here's the causal pattern. If you do this, you can avoid suffering. And all they're doing is presenting an ancient ancient Near Eastern perspective on why suffering happens to people. Then in the whirlwind, God comes and he tells Job all of his friends are wrong. But then he talks about like Leviathan, which is a really weird thing like a weird creature, but Leviathan in the ancient Near East was an agent of non-order. So not like disorder as in pure evil, but an agent of non-order, similar to like Godzilla, right? So like we get Godzilla, Godzilla isn't malevolent inherently, but when Godzilla shows up on the scene, you're not sure, like, is this guy going to produce suffering or is he going to help us defeat, uh, you know, Ghidra or what do they call him now? Mothra. Moth- oh yeah, yeah. Poor Mothra. Mothra is always like presented as a as a positive agent of some sort of you know spiritual significance. But you know, so when Godzilla shows up in the scene, he's kind of non ordered. Um, maybe a good example of this is weather. There are facets of creation that Christians would say this is part of the right ordering, and this is part of non order, the non ordered realm that we get invited to bring into order. So one of the examples I bring up in my book, living in Minnesota, it's brutally cold. And so when a winter storm hits us in January and it's cold and we get, you know, a foot of snow, that isn't an opportunity, though I go out and I feel the suffering of that cold. I don't need to look at that and go, well, that's disordered as in it's not functioning in the proper order of God's creation. But this might be an opportunity for me to respond and go, man, is this something that is bad or can I transform all of this immense amount of snow into a great opportunity to go sledding with my kids? So that's an invitation to think about how non-ordered invites us to bring order. And then that final category is disorder. So there are things in creation 
that are not functioning in the the teleological design God intends for them. So disorder is the movement away from the good that produces suffering. So it's a really long answer for you, Hunter, but all that is to say, when we deal with instances of suffering, you know, part of my thesis that I'm presenting is, I think the primary thing we're trying to figure out is like, yes, God, where are you in this? So we can get to that philosophical problem is like, is it God all good or is he all powerful? Which one is it? Do we have to compromise? But I think really what we're after is how do we properly respond to suffering? And is I think the way that we categorize our instances of suffering is important. And I think that's unavoidable because we all suffer. Fair enough. Uh, Jake, you want to lead us into the next question? Sure thing. Oh, so before, beforehand, I just want to, a little thing popped in my head uh, when you brought up Leviathan. Are you telling me that Leviathan is not, in fact, a crocodile or hippopotamus? It is not Ken Ham. I'm sorry. <laughs> that would oh, not be here first. That, and how do we get there? Like, this is a really important question. It's an important sidebar. I'm glad you brought it up. But how we get there is an important part of like proper biblical interpretation. If we come to the text and we think all of our questions are inspired. So if I come and I'm trying to figure out is Leviathan like a dinosaur? Is it a crocodile? Is it a hippopotamus? I'm importing my questions and saying my question is inspired instead of the text being inspired. So if I actually affirm that the text is inspired, then I don't bring my questions and go, well, my question must be inspired. I go, no, 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 no. God vested his authority in human authors with communicative purposes. And my job is to step into their world and figure out what their intention is. And I think there's plenty of good evidence to suggest that an ancient Near Eastern person hearing Leviathan knows very well what Leviathan symbolizes and what Leviathan means. And it has nothing to do with crocodiles or hippopotamus. Hippopotami? Is that the plural of hippopotamus? Could be. Could be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sucks that we're not going to see you at the uh, Ark Farm, but <laughs> hey, yo, it's what it is. <laughs> uh, pocket that thought because that might be relevant for uh, pocket some of those thoughts because they may become relevant for future questions. I'm glad that we were talking about suffering and a whole lot. You know, it makes me feel real good. Um, but thinking about uh, the problem of evil and suffering um, within a historical framework, and I'm not a historian, so. I might assume some things that you'll need to correct, uh, Big Paul. But prior to modernity, I'm under the impression that, you know, dudes die of dysentery. They eat something, turns out that something wasn't good for them. They get sick and die. Uh, you know, you marry a woman and, oh, you know, you're in love. It's all lovely and feely. Yeah, and then you have your first child. Oh, woman dies. And even if you were successful in the birth, oh, three kids later, woman dies. And maybe none of those children actually managed to get through the childbirth situation because they all died. Um, and war, famine, death. I'm under the impression that historically speaking, life expectancy was kind of a little teeny tiny. And that um, as of the advent of the industrial age, sure, uh, things still kind of sucked during the industrial era, but particularly moving on through into the 20th century, life expectancy really raised. Um, and 
as time has gone on and as we've industrialized further and further, life expectancy goes up. Uh, the comfortability of life also goes up. Fewer deaths, uh, mortality is way lower. And theoretically, we have been on this uh, upward curve into historical progress. Um, as the Enlightenment thinkers more or less would have uh, wanted. Um, and so it seems in modernity, things should be great. Things should be absolutely wonderful. But when you look at all the stats and statistics and particularly seeing as this uh, interview is thinking within the context of Gen Z's uh, current situation, which I forgot to mention, AO topics about Gen Z, uh, this generation of ours is depressed, anxious, uh, so on and so forth, has a crisis of identity. And I've said to another person in the past, basically a crisis of everything. Nihilism because of the uh, global crisis, uh, I mean, global climate crisis. But sure, pick your crisis and we're struggling through it. But life should be the most comfortable it's ever been. Life expectancy is high. This is the best time to be alive. So why is it the case that the problem of suffering and evil is still relevant when our ancestors had a, theoretically a bigger reason to complain than we do, and yet we are not happy? Mm. Um, I'd like to hear you some of your thoughts. That's an awesome question. I want to preface it by saying I'm, I'm not a historian either. I have an undergrad in history, but that doesn't qualify me to be a historian um it's such a it's such a great question i think we maybe you touched on a couple of things that might be important terminology for people coming in to distinguish between two layers of what we might call evil and philosophers theologians differentiate between natural evils and moral evils and i think a lot of what you're referring to as we look back in the past is especially in the category of, of natural evil but you know probably in moral evil um People in the past experienced a lot more death as, as what we might call as a casualty of natural evil. So the difference between those two categories, we think about moral evil, we think about maybe, you know, something relevant here to Americans, especially like an old millennial borderline Gen Xer like me. One of the, you know, most significant moments in my lifetime was September, September 11th, which is what what I found from talking to Gen Z people is like, I, they just can't fathom how different the world was in America in particular pre that date. When we look at a tragedy like September 11th, for example, we can point more easily to the moral evils behind that sort of suffering. So we could point to on a really basic level, we could point to the moral actions of free agents who flew those planes in the Twin Towers into the Pentagon building, et cetera. We could point then and go back to talking about moral agents in foreign policy, U.S. foreign policy. In some ways, talking about moral evils is simpler because we can point and say that agent chose using their will to do this and it produced this outcome. Natural evils are trickier. And in the, the ancient world, the medieval time, people experienced a lot more of what we might say are natural evils. And um, I think going through COVID these last couple of years have maybe given us a little bit more of a glimpse into the psychological state that probably people lived with for most of their life if they made it past, you know, infancy or youth is the sense that the world that they inhabit is very difficult 
it's not necessarily something that they would experience as like hospitable to them all the time. It's challenging. It's difficult. It's filled with uh, things that we have diseases that we now have cures for that they didn't have cures for in the past. So that presents this maybe a different way of engaging with the fundamental nature of what the world is. And that's why Gnosticism was such an attractive option to ancient peoples. I think particularly if when we get into the second century, uh, third century into the fourth century, that you you had this real issue between historic or what we call orthodox, what emerges really orthodox, what was orthodox Christian theology and Gnosticism. And I think for people to appreciate Gnosticism and its um, its its persistency, we need to understand that the Gnostics were saying something about the problem of evil. They were suggesting to people something that seemed in alignment with how they felt felt and experienced reality. And that was the world is fundamentally evil. The material world is fundamentally flawed and broken. It's the product of a, a wicked, if not just faulty demiurge. And the goal then is to transcend physicality. And you can actually see how that'd be really appealing to people as they live in a world where it's like, hey, you know, this is this is my wife's fourth stillbirth, or I haven't had a child make it past the age of six. This is not a hospitable world. This world seems this world seems evil. And the Christians, the earliest Christians said, no, 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 no. We have to affirm these two poles here. On the one hand, we start with the fundamental goodness of the world. And then we affirm that emerging out of this fundamental goodness was something that in people and agents, both human and spiritual agents, there was a bent towards disorder. Now, when we get to like talking about what does that look like in our context, that bent doesn't go away. It just takes new shapes. So while we might not experience, like this isn't Oregon Trail, right? Where you're going to die of dysentery regularly. This isn't, that's not a normal feature of our life. I don't think it matters because all of our experiences of suffering are kind of like relative to the context we inhabit. So you're really going to feel like you're suffering if you inhabit, for example, let's say like a social group where everybody has uh, you know, a nice house, everybody has a two-car garage, everybody's making a you know a middle class income. You're going to experience it as immense suffering if you don't fit into that social group because you make less, or maybe you have some sort of um a disease that actually makes it difficult or for you to work in a way that would allow you the opportunity to make that kind of income. So all we feel existentially is the sense that in our social status ladder, we are lower than others. We're not experiencing the life that they have. And so comparing us to people in the past or even across the world, I don't know. I've never met somebody that felt like, you know, let's say they're struggling financially you know, for reasons that are outside of their control, they were fired, the the pandemic caused them to lose their job. Uh, They came down with some illness. I've never felt it beneficial to anybody to tell them, well, do you know that half of the world's population lives on less than $2 a day? And you know, you're getting uh, this social security, not social security, but you're getting an unemployment check, you should feel really, really happy based on the rest of the world is suffering. It just doesn't work. Um, Why that is? Um, it might have to do with the fundamental propensity of our human nature to be bent towards um, 
pride. It might just be the fact that we're social creatures. So we're always trying to figure out where we relate in social groups. I think one of the hard things for you guys as, as Gen Z people is that you are constantly connected to like a an amorphous social network. You've been like born into this with devices that connect you to people at all times. And so there's always this possibility of comparison for where you sit in some sort of social setting. And it's so disorienting because it's always moving, right? Like when I was a when I was a young guy, like pre-internet days, the only people I knew were like the people in my church and in my neighborhood. And so my comparison of my life to theirs was really simple, you know, like, and I could feel like, Hey, relative to others, I'm experiencing some sense of normal life. But now you, you guys have been born plugged in to a world that's constantly like giving you different social groups that you're always connected to. And I think that makes it really hard to figure out, am I suffering in relation to others? Um, that's just one factor. I'm, I'm curious to hear like hmm. both of your responses to that. What do you think? growing up in this this world makes it difficult for people to actually experience like a sense of happiness a sense of contentment might be the better word hmm. yeah I, I think you um you said some really good stuff that um, changed my mind a bit i i hadn't compared the natural evils to like the moral evils of our day or even just like we look around us and like the social disparities that are so um just like common throughout our society um it's really hard to compare um that type of suffering um yeah sure you can't know for sure but i could definitely um harmonize with uh what you said about the like are the amorphous environment that we're in and the fact that like you know trends used to be like all right this was the music of the 70s like these are this is the the style of the 70s this was the 80s the 90s it was each defined but it's like each day gets defined differently now. And it's like, if you're not on the cutting edge of what's defining each new day, then you're behind um, and you're outside of some in-group. And so it's very, it's very hard to keep up with that. And it does cause mental anguish. I have a friend that um, he's a music teacher and I noticed the guitars in your background, Jake, and I'm, I'm a musician too. And he he was telling me one of the differences as a music teacher working with um, with Gen Z music students is, um, and this is again, like just anecdote. So it might not be true, but I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on it. Um, because there's always a camera nearby, there's always the sense that people people's failures could be on display in real easy ways. So this gets into like what I've noticed even in trends in like Gen Z music, which as like an old millennial, like Gen X, almost Gen Xer, I hung, I spent most of my time in my teenage years hanging out with Gen Xers. So I, I identify, can I do that? I identify as a Gen Xer. Is that allowed? Um, there you go. There, that works. I just, I just did it. <laughs> and I think about the music of that, that era, which was really um, like people, I, I think of like Eddie Vedder and Pearl Jam. Like you listen and this guy sounds genuine and authentic. And I almost wonder if authenticity is very difficult to allow in an era where any authenticity could be instantly a meme, right? Like you could instantly become a meme with picking up that guitar, hopping on right now, Jake, and like pouring your heart out. But if you make a mistake, it's going to be on 
YouTube, on any sort of like, I wonder how much that plays into a sense of constant, like, I, I don't know if I can be myself because myself, if I fail, that failure could affect me like the rest of my life. I don't know. Yeah, I, we, I mean, we grew up watching people be excommunicated from society for making mistakes that they made before the internet was even created. Uh, which is it was insane to me in high school seeing people be fired for mistakes they made in the past like that it's like you're not even safe pre-internet era like Mm -hmm. or even just when social media was first getting started and you know like uh, so just social norms were changing and so you have people doing things before certain social norms and then they became unnormal to say certain things and people were getting just cut down left and right. And it it may, I think it made my generation really scared to speak up about it. Even Um, I I think in in school, I made like a 10 minute video talking about cancel culture. Um, (laughs) Because it, I don't know, it it didn't make sense to me when I was younger and it still doesn't, but you can really even be canceled for doing something genuine and, and I guess embarrassing or cringe in a certain way. Yeah. Um, in which you're not really being canceled for doing something um, deemed immoral, but doing something deemed embarrassing by the rest of society. So, yeah, that's, uh, I think about music again, come back to the music thing. Cause I've noticed. Um, so I'll take a band and I don't want to pick on them in a negative way. Cause they're all virtuoso musicians. There's a band called Wolfpack. I don't know if you've heard them or not. They mm-hmm. are, I, I mean, just ridiculous. Like, uh, you think that they might've been designed in some sort of like laboratory to be the perfect musicians. And yet, and this is just like, again, my own observation, it's covered in this sort of veneer of constant irony where they will never actually, I don't feel any sense in which anybody is saying anything that they mean. It's just like, we're virtuosos, we're freak musicians. And now we're in front of you. And I, there's a lack of like soul in the music. Now, again, this is just my own perspective. Other people listening to this or watching this go, man, I love Wolfpack and I feel so much soul spirit in their music, but I compare it to music of the past and I go, these guys are freaks, but I don't feel any spiritual connection. I don't just mean connection in like a Christian sense where they're singing or affirming things that I go, oh, this is deeply in the structure of my values. I'm just talking about even like soul music in the classic sense that we use that term. Um, And I just wonder about how that sort of constant fear of I'm always running the risk of being an outcast at the slightest misstep with a group that I might never even meet in person, how much that plays some sort of psychological role in in a sense of like, yeah, I'm, I feel like I'm constantly suffering. I fear that it, um, I fear that the, what you're talking about, generally speaking, and I think I've noticed stuff like this on the internet before, um, will feed into a sense of, uh, one, it can, bond certain communities together um certain communities that can hold certain values and because of the values that they would hold would fear that because of these values that they hold that they would be ostracized for them and so that would build uh 
within that community a sense of, well, we need to stick together, otherwise they are going to cancel us. And you'll hear it at some of the CPAC um, events or whatever conservative events you want to look at, that we need to cancel them first before they cancel us. And so, sure, I can see a sense of um, fear that whatever I do, I am being watched um, as I do it. Um, whatever I say and think um, is being monitored, um, not, not by some like big uh, brother kind of monitoring, but by my peers um, or whoever, and is being judged accordingly. Um, and as such, creates a kind of us versus them um, distinction from of your group against theirs, whoever they are. And as consequence, uh, pushes people away from each other and thus creating the various uh, social divides within the physical world as well as within the uh, uh, digital, um, Mm. which we see more or less all over the show with uh, culture wars and uh, what have you. Um, What do you think? That's great. I think it's, I think what you're describing here is the sense of constantly living in a state of disorder right and the disorder is changed from if you were a medieval peasant in France you know it's like different but you're still you can't compare to that you yeah. just can't you don't live there you know you're not playing by the same the same rules and so what you are experiencing is a different sense of disorder and it's so disorienting because this is actually not how human communities are right should be rightly ordered you know, and I say this, and I say this from my my Christian convictions, right? About there is an optimal and less than optimal way that human communities can be ordered. And there's there's ways we're doing this now on the internet. There's ways in which genuine community and connection can happen in digital spaces. Maybe you're you can be in a in a like a Zoom group. Like I, I host like a monthly, typically monthly, like Zoom discussion with people that listen, and that's really really profitable. You know, you can have like a Discord server that you might be plugged into, and those those tools can be used in a way that actually actually produces some semblance of like rightly ordered community. But the rules that you you guys are we're all living in now, um, where there's little room for forgiveness, grace, mercy, for growth, for opportunities for people to grow, where we constantly get a sense of our own identity out of the failings of other people. And that is, um, that's, that's toxic, toxic and it's disordered. And so we experience that disorder. And every time we experience disorder as the disorder that feels beyond our control, it does push us into the problem of evil because it's in that state where we go, this is a disorder that's beyond my control. There has to be some sort of agents beyond me that can have some control over this. And it might be as simple as like, not a rational connection between these ideas. But whenever we experience disorder, we frequently go to the question of where are you, God, in this? Because this feels so beyond my control. And that's where I think it's relevant. You know, and you might go, and every generation hears it from the previous generation. Well, they go, you didn't have as as bad as us. Maybe I think there's some things we can learn from that. Like my, my, my granddad fought in World War II and he got malaria in the, Pacific theater and dwindled down to 90 pounds. 
And then he came back and had like seven kids, you know, and worked a stable job his entire life. Um, you know, nobody was talking to him about like microaggressions and things like that. It's just a different world, but I don't live in that world. And you guys don't live in that world. So in some sense, when you have people just tell you, well, it's not as bad as it used to be. Oh, oh, great. Yeah. I mean, there's some things. Thankfulness is really important. Like in practicing a posture of gratefulness is really important for the things that we have. Maybe doing things like, um, like doing a, a daily examine prayer, you know, at the end of your day, which is a tradition, you know, from the, I think the, I think it was the Jesuits. Um, I know Jesuits practice it regularly, but in the the broader Catholic tradition, the, the examine prayer of going at the end of your day and going, all right, where was God at work? And then it fosters in your heart the sense of like gratefulness. Those are really, really relevant and really important. But the sort of like, well, your generation has it way easier than ours. I think it neglects the sense of like, I don't think you guys understand fully. And I don't understand your experiences as an older millennial it doesn't makes it doesn't help people deal with the sense of like this still feels disordered i don't see where god is at work in this i want things to be rightly ordered and i can't figure out how i agree um and i personally i've seen it a lot on youtube because that's kind of where i hang out a lot um other people hang out in tech talk that's like the defining social media platform for my generation I'm an older Gen Z uh, on the edge of millennial. Uh, so for me, it was YouTube. Um, and you'll see like video after video if you're looking for it, which will bombard you with um, uh, like phraseologies along the lines of uh, Gen Z is so ungrateful or Gen Z is the worst uh, for X, Y, and Z reason. Um, or Gen, here's a comment that was landed on one of my uh, videos. Um, that uh, Gen Z theology will be the downfall of the West. And um, man, I, I read that, and in one level, I was like, that's funny. <laughs> like, that's that's outlandishly funny. I, if that was irony, I'd be like, round of applause. Too bad I really think it was sincere. And it goes to demonstrate more of what I think you were uh, communicating, that... Um, it's also within my own generation, our, uh, me and Jake's own generation, of uh, people who look down upon our generation for being, pick your uh, buzzword that I spat out a moment ago amongst others. Um, and within a, our cultural context where we already have uh, reason after reason to be divided over uh, group after group, um, it doesn't seem helpful to me that um, either older generations or generations within our own who have more, I'll just say, more conservative beliefs um, seem to look down on uh, Gen Z for being all these things that I say when if an older person, let's say a Gen Xer or a Boomer or what have you, uh claims that we're so ungrateful we're uh, blowhards and uh whatever and uh we have a way easier than they had it well i concur actually with what you said that well maybe there's something to that that maybe we should be grateful because it's very easy 
within our contact, it's very easy to really get bogged down in the negative feelings of it all. Maybe we should uh, reflect on what they say and think, well, well, how should we be grateful? But at the same time, it isn't your time anymore and things have changed. Uh, it sucks that things were hard in your time, but things are hard in our time as well for us relative to the things that we go through. And maybe some of us express that pain very differently than others. Some of us express that pain in response to a lot of things. Uh, all pain is in response to something. And for some of us, we, express, we experience pain at the source of one group, let's say, and then pendulum swing to the other group. And maybe by consequence, that pendulum swinging leads to us being cringe in various ways, where we say things that we otherwise wouldn't have said, believe things we otherwise wouldn't have believed, but because of the circumstance we find ourselves in where we're reacting to something that's burned us, we now do not want to engage with that thing because, ooh, fire is hot and I don't want to touch it again. So what's the opposite of fire? Maybe a little bit of ice. And yes, um, that's really good. Uh, that, I, you know, I'm, I'm a big Kierkegaard disciple. And so it pains me to bring up anything from Hegel because Kierkegaard had such strong <laughs> feelings against Hegel. <laughs> And um, but you get this Hegelian idea, which you know some people even debate: did did Hegel actually ever teach this? This idea that you have as the movements of history, you have the thesis, which is like the previous generations, you know, status quo or the 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 idea from the past, and then emerging as a sort of counterbalance to the thesis, you have the antithesis. So what you can see, like with each generation, is I don't you know, cause every generation hears it, you know, it was the really in vogue thing 10 years ago for everyone to blame all of society's ills on millennials. Right. It, and and then before that they were blaming it on Gen Xers and before the boomers, it was, you know, the greatest generation blaming it on the boomers. And what you actually have, what we need to see in each generation is the, well, well if they're like this, what culpability do I take in that I'm like raising these kids, or I think in many ways, there's responses to get back to Hegel. You have this, here's the idea, but the idea that we, the values, I should say, that we were holding on to neglected this value, this value, and this value. And so the next generation comes along and they felt the deficiency of those values, right? They felt those were absent. And so maybe they grab onto those. And part of grabbing onto those is they go, hey, those things that you felt were so important at the top of your value hierarchy were stupid. And so now we have the antithesis and we can kind of see this in the culture wars. We can see it in the, the, you know, the sort of movement, especially Gen Z millennial movement towards like activist culture is like a lot of what the activist culture is, is the sort of Hegelian antithesis to what they saw was the previous generation going, we're fine with the status quo. And so what we need to do to really show that we're have different values is we better march on the streets. We better have all the right bumper stickers and placards out in our yard. And so what we're doing here is like responding to the previous generation's thesis. Hopefully what emerges in this is, and this is again, like the, the, the Hegelian notion of how progress happens is in that dialectical tension, some new synthesis emerges. And I actually think that can be like Christianized in a positive way that what we can actually have happen is as generations move instead from combative to going, all right, I see the thesis, 
Can you see why we're presenting the antithesis and both sides go, okay, I'm seeing that maybe in the spirit of um, the Christ-like spirit of I'm not here to rule over you like the Gentiles, but I'm here to wash your feet. If both sides take that posture, then maybe there's a new synthesis that can emerge so that we can come out and go, all right, what do we actually have to learn about ourselves from Gen Z culture about like where we were missing the mark in our values? And then Gen Z culture can go be like, hey, we don't have it all together. What can the previous generations teach us? And in that way, a healthy new synthesis emerges. But it is really difficult. It is really difficult when people are hurting to do this. Yeah. And that's that gets back maybe to the emotional problem of evil. If you don't have the resources to deal with the grief, the lament, the loss of a sense of home, the loss of a sense of like it, it sucks. It sucks that you you can come out. It used to be once upon a time. Here's the story I was told as a kid. All all you need to do, get a college degree. You get a college degree and work hard, you're going to have a good job, be financially stable. In my lifetime, we've lived through like at least two major recessions that were outside of my control, you know? And some people like, oh, well, yeah, like the previous generations lived through worse stuff, but still you can come out, have a degree and you go looking for jobs and they're like five years of experience for entry level stuff. And you're like, and then you get blamed for being, you know, in your mid twenties and you're like still feeling a sense of being dependent on your parents. But it was like, your parents had more opportunities in their generation. You know, so yeah, when you got done with your college degree or whatever, your trade school, you know, you just got out and you got a job. But that's not the case anymore. And so to just, uh, there's a lot of pain there. You know, there's like a sense of hurt and loss that people have to process. And if they don't process that, they're not going to be able to dialogue together. No. No. I agree. Agreed. All right. Uh, You want to carry this, Jake? Yeah, sure. So um, when we were coming up with the questions for um, for this interview, I kind of... um, was it was interesting because I was like, I've never actually really had like a discussion about the problem of evil with just a group of, of other Christians before. And it made me think about the, like the church and what the church's role and how that fits in that. And so my question was, is it the church's job to address the problem of evil for its members? And has the church been successful in doing this in, in recent times, I guess? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think our, our job, Um, If we satisfy maybe the overarching um, invitation to our vocational call that addressing the problem of evil on an emotional level, presenting a compelling narrative that maybe satisfies at least some sense of like, this is a coherent philosophical structure for addressing evil and suffering, that those things are kind of like sub points under a broader goal, which is primarily our, our calling is to bless the world. And as we see that as our primary calling, and I, I think about this in two layers. One is I do think we have this calling to be the true the, the, the storytellers of the true story of the world. So we have to retain the story. And we're we're storied creatures, and we live in a world that has competing stories. And not all of those stories can be true. D- despite maybe, you know, like 
maybe some postmodern inclinations to say, well, there are no transcultural truths. All we have are local truths. Um, that that breaks. We all know that it breaks down. Like the that breaks down, and we see it breaking down. We say breaking down in like real practical ways. When we go, I, I see. Not to get off on a, a tangent here, but when I see, um, you know, Dude, tangent, tangent, <laughs> tangents are fun. When I see people like lauding the bravery of Iranian Iranian women, and I go, okay, if you're going to laud them for their standing up to the sort of like Islamic theocracy that they see, what you're telling me is that there are transcultural truths. What you're saying is the truth that we have in our culture is the truth that's also true for them. So if we do that, then we have to affirm these transcultural truths. So anyways, getting back to the primary point, we have to tell the true story of creation. I think we're we're, we're, we're called to be those storytellers. We're called to be the ones that carry on this, the story of Jesus. But we're also called to bless the world by bringing right ordering to the non-ordered and to the disordered that we experience in the world as agents of healing and renewal. So this might look like, for example, I'll, I'll, sit, I'll pick my fa- pick on my father-in-law, for example. You know, my, my father-in-law isn't in vocational ministry like, like I am. He's been a medical engineer his entire life, and he's helped develop patents on the pacemaker. Um, he's helped um, develop like a cochlear implant to help people who are hearing impaired be able to hear. So like, Maybe 10, 15 years ago, there was this kind of like viral video going around on YouTube of this gal that was all um, like full sleeve tattoos. And it was a video of her hearing for the first time. And my father-in-law sent that to us as it was going around viral and said, hey, the team I was working on helped make this device to help this, this gal hear for the first time. I look at that as part of the mission of the church to bring healing where there's disorder, right? Ears are designed to hear. And so where we see something that isn't optim- functioning to its optimal order, we can work as agents to bring healing and renewal. And sometimes that looks like participating in Christ's suffering and taking on the suffering and just absorbing it. That's that's part of the process too, as well as we we, we take on and we say, hey, you know what? Uh, in the, the middle of a culture war right now, um, especially here in the US, I don't know what it's like in, in Ireland. You've certainly had, Ireland's had its own history of... <laughs> probably worse culture wars. Um, and, and, yeah. and well, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to say, but from a violent standpoint, um, it's, it's, yeah, a couple car bombs. it's what it is. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's what it is. Uh, but we, we are called in some sense to go, all right, am I willing, this might, this might roll with some feathers, but am I willing to lose the culture war for the sake of the kingdom of God? Knowing that by playing by the culture war rules, I'm once as soon as I play by the rules of those game, that game, I'm already like I'm playing into Sauron's hand. I'm playing in by the rules of Sauron or the Empire. Pick your sci-fi fantasy metaphor of your choice. So how do I maybe absorb the suffering of that and go, um, you know what? This might cost me in the short term less, or it might cost me more to take on this suffering in culture not be like, Hey, maybe we are going to lose in America. Like you're going to lose seats of power in, you know, um, in, in Congress for people that have supposedly have your ideology, but you're not going to support it through people that try to establish the, some sort of Christian order through violence, through coercion, through threat, through force, through 
dirty tactics and you go, no, that's not how we're going to do it. So I might suffer in the short term personally, and I'm going to absorb that because I think my primary objective and the primary objective of the church is to act as agents of healing and renewal. So I'm going to bless Babylon. I'm going to make good art. I'm going to tell the story the best I can. I'm going to raise my kids as healthy as I possibly can. I'm going to love my neighbors. Uh, I am going to care for those who are in need. So this is what it looks like to me to actually respond to the emotional problem of evil and to have a story that hopefully is compelling enough to give people a reason to keep pressing on in their instances of evil and suffering. Hmm. Today's episode and all of our episodes are made possible without advertisement because of the generous support of listeners like you over on Patreon. Currently, we have 90 Patreon supporters. We need to hit 200 in order for my work to continue in 2023. But I do want to give an extra special thanks to supporters like Clint, Jesse, Alex, BJ, Daniel, Dave, Eli, Elise, Garth, Jesse, John Mark, Johnny, Josie, Justin, Kirk, Lola, Luke H., Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Paul Spencer, Paul Reese, Rob, Sam, Sarah R., Stephen, Taylor. Thank you all for your generous support. I can't do this without you. Again, hoping to get 200 patrons here as we head into 2023. Please consider supporting. We've got thousands of listeners and all it takes is a couple hundred people to support it, to support my work. So thank you for considering. You know what I just learned this year? The number one way that people are discovering podcasts is from a text message from a trusted friend. So if this episode has been helpful to you in any way, why don't you text it to a few friends? They might find it helpful as well. Well, until next time, thank you all for your support. Thanks for your listening today. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.